When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning! My name is Jared, and I'm joined here by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Ryan. Sup, film fans? And back on the airwaves, we got Austin. What's up, man? Yo, what up, motherfuckers? Hell yeah. Dude. <laughs> Welcome back, baby. Welcome Miss back, you. man. It's good to be back. So give us a little bit of your... your you said you're up to 90%? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, it was a keyhole operation so the actual surgical wounds aren't that bad but uh you know just getting back into shape and I was in a hospital bed for like almost two weeks so there's a little bit of atrophy and then just getting my lungs back up to to working order and also just the stupid hesitance right like feeling like oh no am I going to overexert myself and undo uh. the surgery just getting over that stupid mental that mental block but I feel like the first 80%, I was there in like three weeks after the surgery, and then I think it's just that final that final 20% that's just going to take a little bit longer. Mm. But day-to-day activities, I'm 100%. It's just the like hardcore exercise stuff, swimming, playing ball, things like that that are going to take a little bit of time. Well, I hope those hospital visits did not bankrupt you because today we're talking about Parasite, the 2019 <laughs> film directed by directed and co-written by Bong Joon-ho, starring Song Kang-ho, Park So-dam, and Choi Woo-sik. As always, we're going to go around and get people's first impressions. Ryan, we saw this movie together. What did you think of it? Yeah, we did. We actually just ran into each other at the theater, I believe, right? (laughs) That's right. Um, Or you texted me 30 minutes before the movie, inviting me, and I said, bro, I've already got tickets, same time, same theater. (laughs) I know, and I was like, hell yeah, we're on the same wave. What theater was it? Arclight, because yeah, we saw I was gonna it ask, and it was yeah. only playing at two theaters, yeah. Was it was it a good experience there? Because they usually do something kind of fun, and the, the, just going to Arclight kind of has an extra je ne sais quoi about it, right? A little bit. Not as much as the Draft House, but, I mean, the, 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 they'll have, like, the, the filmmaker will be there, or somebody from the movie will be there sometimes. That's about as, as much as they do, kind of. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. So, But what would you think of the movie? Okay, so what did I think about Parasite? I could not have been looking more forward to this movie. Bong Joon-ho is one of my favorite filmmakers. I think he he's up there with the greatest of all time, and then definitely living filmmakers. You know, he's 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 on that short list of the best. And I guess my short my short review of this movie is: I give it a ten out of ten, and I wanted <laughs> I wanted a thirteen out of ten. <laughs> So I, I would say I love this movie. It's hard for me to even find flaws in it. But yeah, I like, like, compared to his other movies, which literally every one of them packs such a big punch. Like, me and Jared love Mother so much. Like, that was one of, yeah. uh, I feel like, a movie we, we really uh, related to uh, early on when we came to L.A. Mother, his version of Mother, not the Aronofsky. And then, you know, Memories of a Murder, The Host, Snowpiercer. Every single one of those really hits me hard. And then this one also hits me hard. But I don't know. It's it, when I compare it to the others, it's kind of in the middle, I'd say. But uh, but I love this movie. It's great. All right, Austin. What about you? Yeah, I'm gonna do the Spinal Tap and turn it up to eleven out of ten as well. Cause uh, all right. Yeah, I thought this was pretty pretty epic. I saw it at the Sydney Film Fest, which was like a couple of weeks after Cannes, and so it had just taken home the Palme d'Or, and then it came to Sydney Film Fest, and it took the top prize at the Sydney Film Fest as well. And Bong Joon-ho was here, and I was in the audience with a theater filled with Koreans. For people who know Sydney, Sydney is a very multicultural uh, place, and there is a large Korean population here. And so I think that enhanced the experience. You know, it's like when you see a Scottish film in Scotland with Scottish people. Like, I saw Filth in Scotland, and I think that enhanced my experience of seeing an Irvin Welsh film, right? Because I was with Scottish people who got the inside jokes, and so the energy was just raised. It was very similar with this. The energy was just raised to the hilt. Um, I thought it was fantastic. I think it's a masterpiece, and I don't want to... I don't want to do the unfair, uncharitable thing where people are kind of comparing apples and oranges, but I do want to say all of the political and social attention that a film like Joker is getting, 
I think that Parasite does what Joker is supposedly doing in terms of at least like the the hardcore lefty critique, like that it's a structural critique, yada, yada, yada. Parasite does that a billion times better in a cinematic form that I think the direction is pitch perfect. It's cinematically wonderful. The visual motif of the stairs is handled, I think, better in Parasite than it is in Joker. I just think Parasite is like a flawless example of what a film can do that is both social commentary, but also just cinematic and thematic masterpiece. It's a family story. I think I told you this, Jared, that that's actually what Bong Joon-ho says. He's like, everyone always asks me, like, what's the parasite? Who's the parasite? He's like, this is just a family film. And everyone started laughing and we watched the movie and then we kind of got the joke by the end of it. I think this is a wonderful film across the board. So Filmmakers are such trolls like that. I remember <laughs> listening... I remember listening to an interview with Paul Thomas Anderson after There Will Be Blood came out, and it was on NPR, and the interviewer asked him, what inspired you to make this film? There's all these great, grandiose, deep themes, and he just goes, yeah, I just really wanted to make a film outside. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah, fucking yeah, that's kinda... right. All the thought that goes into this movie, and that's what you're going to give us, you fucking troll. Well, and if you know his filmography, Bong Joon-ho's filmography, you get his sense of humor, and so when he says, this is just a family film... The audience kind of laughed, and then I think by the end of it, everyone even got the joke more, you know? Because mm. the, the humor in this <laughs> film is also, like, I mean, it's hysterical. Like, I was laughing so hard, but then also hitting, being hit in the feels so hard at the same time, and it leaves you on this very ominous, serious, thought-provoking note. But at the same time, it, it, isn't, it isn't like it's trying to beat you over the head with some sort of social commentary, you know? So it's not... It's not too self-serious. And the way he does that, I think, is almost unlike any other filmmaker that is out right now. You know? Hey, man, yeah. I'm so jealous of you that you got to watch with the Korean audience because he, he, Bong Joon-ho himself says, like, this is his most, quote-unquote, Korean movie. Mm. You know, that there's lots mm. of inside jokes, like you're saying, that, that, that you know, an American audience wouldn't necessarily pick up on. Mm. I, met, mm. I met Bong Joon-ho once. I pretended to be a student at Chapman University, <laughs> and I got him to sign my copy of Mother. So I'm pretty <laughs> yeah, proud dude. of that. Uh, I love this movie. I saw it twice. I actually liked it better the second time. Mm. And I don't know if I'd say it's top Bong Joon-ho. Those probably the two top ones for me are Memories of Murder and Mother. But this one would probably go third. Can't say enough positive things about this movie. I think it's razor sharp. And I'm really excited to talk to you guys about it. But before we get into a recap, a couple things I want to mention. One, you've probably heard me say this before, but we now have a Medium page. The Wisecrack team's working really hard to get articles written three a week. Go hit us up at medium.com slash wisecrack. Subscribe to the page. Like our like and share our articles. It's all the stuff you come to expect to, from us, but in text form. Also, we've got... One podcast also going on right now, our South Park podcast. Links are in the subscription. <laughs> Links are in the description to subscribe. Uh, we're covering every episode of South Park this season, as well as Rick and Morty comes back this weekend, and we're going to be doing our podcast. Me and Ryan and Alec are going to be doing the Squanch again. So you can also subscribe to that by looking at the show notes or the link in the description. But without further ado, let's go into a recap. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert, of course. The working-class Kim family is struggling to pay the bills until one day their son's friend comes bearing two things, a precious rock meant to symbolize prosperity and a job opportunity for the son to tutor the daughter of the wealthy Park family. The son, Ki-woo, pretends to be a U.S.-educated high-dollar tutor and immediately charms the socks off his impressionable employer, Mrs. Park. Using his talent for theatrics, Ki-woo is able to sell Mrs. Park on hiring a fellow high-dollar specialized tutor for her troublemaker son. She agrees, but unbeknownst to her, she's just hiring Ki-woo's sister, Ki-jung, who knows nothing about children's education. This pattern continues until the entire Kim family is working for the Park family while assuming fake identities. The kids are tutors, the father's a driver, and the mother's the maid. When the Parks go on a camping trip, the Kim family celebrates inside the park house when the recently replaced maid knocks at the door. Mrs. Kim lets her in, and she reveals a secret underground lair in which her husband has been living since before the Parks moved in. When the maid discovers the Kim family's game, she threatens to expose them. The Park family decides to cut their trip short, causing the Kims to subdue and accidentally kill the maid and hide before they're seen by the Parks. 
While hiding under a table, Mr. Kim hears Mr. Park complaining about how Mr. Kim smells of old radish, like many other lower-class undesirables. The Kims escape undetected, but find that their house in the boonies has been flooded. Now, with nowhere left to go, they take refuge in a gymnasium until the next morning. The next day, the Parks throw a party for their youngest son. The Kims all arrive to work the party, but the maid's husband, upset that his wife is dead, emerges from the lair, bludgeons Ki-woo to the head with the Prosperity Rock, and stabs Ki-jung, killing her. When Mr. Kim witnesses Mr. Park holding his nose at the maid's husband, he's reminded of the smell comments and kills him right there. Mr. Kim hides in the lair and Ki-woo experiences brain damage, but he vows that one day he will earn enough money to buy the house and save his dad from living in the underground lair. End of movie. All right, guys. Standing ovation. Thank you, thank you. But before we go on, I want to give a shout out to our sponsors over at Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of amazing classes covering dozens of creative and entrepreneurial skills. You can take classes in everything from photography to creative writing to design, productivity, and more. So whether you're returning to a longtime passion project, challenging yourself to get outside your comfort zone, or simply exploring something new, Skillshare's got a class for you. So for those of you who are fans of the movie Adaptation, there's actually a class written by Susan Orlean, who is the woman who wrote The Orchid Thief that uh, Meryl Streep plays in the movie. And so she is a real writer. She writes for The New Yorker as well as writes other nonfiction texts. And she's got a great class called Creative Nonfiction, Write Truth with Style. If you're into any of the kind of stuff that we do, she, uh, you can learn a lot from this class. She gives you tips on reporting and interviewing, how to turn your subject into a story. A lot of the times when we're writing videos, it's all about how do we take this angle or take this subject and how do we turn it into some sort of a narrative with three acts. So I highly recommend Susan's class. You can join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for Show Me the Meaning listeners. Two free months. That's right, Skillshare is offering Show Me the Meaning listeners two free months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash Wisecrack. Again, Skillshare.com slash Wisecrack to start two free months right now. That's Skillshare.com slash Wisecrack. And now back to the show. So the first thing I want to ask you guys is, why do you think this movie is so popular? I think this mm. is like the Gangnam style of Korean movies in that I've people are seeing this movie, people are talking about this movie that don't normally talk about or see foreign films. Why do you think this one has elevated itself to the position to where it's really penetrating the zeitgeist? It's so bizarre and good. <laughs> it's like <laughs> the long and the short of it. <laughs> it's, um, and Bong Joon-ho is a pretty big celebrity over there. Yeah, I mean, Bong Joon-ho is a celebrity. Song Kang-ho is probably like the, one of the biggest Korean actor celebrities, but no one in America knows who they are enough to get like your average movie-going audience to see. But it's good timing for a couple of reasons, right? Because Snowpiercer had, you know, a, a, a leading American sex symbol figure starring in it, and it had a social message, but then it was really popular on Netflix. And then he comes out with Okja, which is a Netflix film, which, I mean, I didn't love, but, you know, it, nevertheless, it was really popular. Again, American film. Um, and then you have Parasite, which he goes back to a Korean non-English speaking or non-English language film. But nevertheless, so he's built up kind of a reputation. And then when you add the social message, considering the political climate, Especially in the West, in the UK, you've got the election that's going on there with Brexit, people that are really interested in like class struggles and uh, the issues between like the 1% or the 0.1% and then the lower classes. And then, of course, in America with the Bernie Sanders campaign and our election. So it just seems like the political climate is also making this film have a lot more of like a punch to it. Well, I would add to that, but also I would say like – if you think if you think about the similarities between this movie, the Palm Day or winner, which also I think that's another big reason it's one winning the big awards. I mean, any time, yeah, any Palm exactly. Day or winner is going to get a, a jump start. But the last year's Palm Day or winner is literally the same movie almost. It's Shoplifters. If you saw that movie, it's a family living. You know, uh, almost it, it almost looks like the same kind of basement set as Parasite. And they're just trying to get by, and they're just fucking over everybody they kind of meet. It's it's kind of funny oh, how similar it is, but that movie was way less popular because a it's just less fun to watch. It's kind of the long mm. and the short of it. Like like Parasite is just a 
it has a drive to it. Uh, you know, he knows how to direct the movie, uh, a movie. And yeah, Shoplifters is kind of way more contemplative. It's longer and unnecessarily longer. It's m- yeah, and it's much slower. It's not as fun, right? Exactly. Like the humor mixed with the pacing, mixed with the beautiful set design. I mean, uh-huh. this film, he made all the sets. It's not like he found, he made these sets, which was fucking crazy oh, wow. to think about, right? With so, his bare hands. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the old days, it's practical effects, baby. But no, like, like I think that all of that stuff makes this film just much more intriguing, and so it's going to flow better than a film like Shoplifters does. But then think about this. Joker just passed the 900 million mark around the world globally. And part Bunch of it is of because— pass out there. Well, yeah. And part of it is because of the social and political context and the hubbub surrounding the film, right? So if Parasite can in any way piggyback off of that similar political and social climate, uh, add in all the stuff that Ryan just said about it being a Palme d'Or winner and that Bong Joon-ho's star is on the rise and all that other stuff. I mean, that's part of the reason why this is like perfect timing for this film, you know? True. I mean, Joker was a beloved character for the last 80 years or whatever, but... I mean, probably the most beloved villain in all of comic books, or at least among general movie-going audiences. But I'll say that, yeah, I think it's the social political message, but also that Bong Joon-ho ha- is a master of comedy. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, even his, the most serious of his movies still have a sense of humor to them. And gosh, I mean, there should never be any drama that has any less comedy than the amount Bong Joon-ho puts in his movies, because... <laughs> It just it makes the drama just work that much better. Mm. And in fact, in general, I think the Koreans are really good about balancing drama and comedy. I mean, the, yeah. the films of Kim Ji Woon are similarly have a great balance of drama and comedy. They're just really great at it. But I, let's start analyzing this movie. Sorry, you were going to say something, Ryan. I was just going to say that I, I watched some featurette online that was like, uh, do, do, do you remember that scene where the son is teaching the dad kind of how to act? You mm-hmm. know. Yes. And he, he was like, Bong Joon-ho was like, that scene plays way better in Korea because basically you have a non-actor or an upcoming actor teaching one of like the the, the Robert De Niro of Korea how yes. to act. Oh, know? that's so and funny. So like that, even that that uh, scene has an extra layer of fun, meta-funniness to it in Korea. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, you I know, there's, there's that. something that the son keeps saying, and I wonder how serious we should take it, but at the very beginning he said, he doesn't say it as much towards the end, but at the very beginning he says it about three or four times, he said, it's so metaphorical. Yes, it's I was so, going to bring this up. Oh, where are you going to bring that up? And I was like... No, no, it's fine. Let- yeah, and I can't help but think if... But now he doesn't say it so much towards the end, but I think by that point it's okay. We're already primed to think, okay, like this is going to be meta on top of meta on top of meta, right? Like there's See, layers here. I had the opposite reading. <laughs> because because to, the, to me, this movie, you, you can't go into this movie and not see the message about class because that's literally what it's about. That's right. what the text is about, not the subtext. You could go see Snowpiercer and just think, oh, that was a cool movie about people trying to get to the front of a train and totally miss any of the socioeconomic statements, which are very similar to the ones we have in this movie. And it's so I don't I kind of thought, though. I, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I agree. I think it was pretty in on Snowpiercer? the too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is, but I don't know. If you brought a seven-year-old to it, they would say, oh, that was a cool movie with action scenes on a train. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, but, but if it's you brought a seven-year-old four- to this, first of all, you're fucked up. Uh, don't expose your <laughs> seven-year-old to this. But second of all, I think it's, I think you could similarly have a, a reaction to this as well as not being ex- explicitly about class that it is just a family film you have to have some level of understanding of kind of economic inequality i think going in right i mean yeah well i i guess what i'm i guess what i'm saying is that if you watched snowpiercer you might not say oh okay so the people in the back of the train are a correlate for the poor people in our modern society but parasite is literally about our modern society yeah okay sure yeah yeah, that, yeah. i can see that that's but i mean all- but there's so much stuff that is supposed to be a visual motif right like the climbing of the stairs the ascending and the descending um the smell the idea that at the end is that like class war where you have the man coming out of the basement and he fights but then at the same time the father he he he's still like he can't get the smell off of him and he has resentment towards mr park so he kills him like is that a metaphor for class war like there is there are layers of metaphor that even go beyond just the kind of more explicit social okay commentary. well let's 
let's do one at a time. I want to bring up a lot of those because some of them I did not write down. Uh, but let's just start with the title. Good place to start. Yeah. Parasite. So there are some obvious readings here. The dad at the end is a parasite because he's feeding, he's li- living in the lair and he's feeding off the food of the wealthy. They're fumigated at the beginning like they're bugs. You could even look at the whole thing with the Kim family fooling the Park family into hiring them. It's that them, they're kind of leeching off the Park family. I really like there's a part at the beginning where the kids are stealing free Wi-Fi because their (laughs) phones can't function without it. They're being like these leeches, these parasites. Um, What else do you think is there? I mean, it depends on how far you want to take the cockroach metaphor, right? Because at the beginning, it's the stink bugs that right. I think we're meant to identify them with, that the, the poor are the stink bugs, and the stink bugs are out of control, so they need to be fu- uh, there needs to be fumigation to control this infestation of the stink bugs. But then there's one – it's really subtle, and there's this bit where they're talking with the pizza box delivery person – and she's kind of like, oh, you know, a fifth of your boxes or a quarter of the boxes, whatever it is, were folded inappropriately, and we have to maintain the brand of our pizza box. And I thought that the wording of that was very intentional. So I do think that there's a way that we can say that this parasitical relationship goes in every direction because ultimately, mm. even though, yes, the poor are identified as leeching off of this wealthy family through their disingenuous activities and actions pretending to be these other people, uh, at the same time, the whole relationship is being upheld by an economic system that itself requires this type of dishonesty, um, this type of the hustle culture. Um, there's a Korean philosopher actually named Byung-Chul Han that I've probably referenced on this podcast multiple times because I'm kind of obsessed with him over the last year or so. But that he talks about how we just all become achievement subjects, searching to uphold the demands of positivity of late capitalist, consumerist, and productive culture. And so we're constantly like, it's hustle, right? Like, so how does how does the young, how does the son first get the job? It isn't because he's a great tutor. What does he do? He tells her to act like she's slashing through a jungle, kind of like the grab the ball or grab the bull by the horns, you know, make Monday your bitch. Thank God it's Monday. Hustle, hustle, hustle. You know, it's like, that's the kind of positive mantra that he preaches. And then the mother is like, oh, you're hired, right? Not because he's such a great English teacher. It's because he can preach the branding of late capitalist, positivist consumer culture. So why do you think it's parasite singular though? And then not parasites, Hmm. right? Like, is it, is it parasite? Like in, this is something that infects us like all of us but this but it affects the 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 one tier of the unequal society in one way and then the other tier in another way but nevertheless they're still they're wedded together by the singular parasite or am i overthinking that well part of me thinks that the parasite is just whoever is living in that lair underground whether it's the maid's husband or mr kim at the end okay so you think of Maybe. it more as like a singular, like there is a singular parasite and it's that it's. Uh, I, I'm not saying that's how I think it's definitive. I think that's a way to read it. I okay. do think that there's probably something grander about the idea of parasitism in general that it's probably referring to. I also just think that perhaps the singular title parasite is just sounds good. <laughs> I mean, whatever. Well, it, it's, it's just a family film anyway, so it doesn't matter. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a detail that I noticed the second time around watching it is that the maid's husband, when she goes to him, he's drinking from a bottle like he's a child, like he's infantilized. Mm. And I was wondering, yeah, it seemed very deliberate to have him drinking out of a bottle rather than or like like literally a baby bottle that has one of those little mouthpieces on the end, not like a water bottle or a sports bottle, which it could have easily have been, but it wasn't. Well, and, and he kind of worships Mr. Park, too. Isn't that yeah. a, that weird? Like, he's thankful that Mr. Park is bestowing this generosity by giving him a lair so that he can be infantilized? It, yeah, is that just, is it like a visual representation of how the poor have to debase themselves to serve the rich? Uh, how they're, uh, well, and then, as, so that would be for maybe the infantilizing thing, but as far as him having to 
pray to him while he hits his lights is how their <laughs> labor only amounts to creating luxury for the wealthy, how they're conditioned to feel grateful for the opportunity for that. Mm. There's a lot of a lot of maybes that I can't really parse out a definitive that's what it means. Mm. The uh, uh, Sorry, I've, re- I've read a lot of Bong Joon-ho interviews about this, and he did say, uh, uh, referencing the Snowpiercer uh, similarities, like that Snowpiercer's... Uh, you know, uh, system is or is a horizontal one, obviously, because yeah. it's a train. And then the parasite one is literally a, a vertical system because it's a house, which mm. huh, we showed you the meaning. All right, you can turn the podcast off. <laughs> but don't the kids live upstairs? Like, uh, yeah, obviously. I mean, one of the I do like how the the parasite, the maid's husband, whatever, he lives underground. But then so do the Kim family. Like they're live their house that gets flooded is underground and there's actually a really awesome part where they're under when their house is flooding and they're scurrying around trying to keep the toilet seat down and trying to save all of their objects and stuff it's intercut with the maid's husband getting out of his bindings and tending to his wife and there's this really nice juxtaposition to essentially say that they're in the same position and that brings me to I want to talk about the rock. What does the rock symbolize? In my mind, and I think this is probably generally the message of the movie, is that how it's the rock symbolizes how poor people don't have class solidarity because they're all trying to get rich. So, you know, when the when the Kim family or specifically Mrs. Kim goes to the basement and sees the maid and the maid's husband, the maid is calling her things like, oh, sister, you're a working class woman like I am. And then she says, don't call me sister. I'm not poor. And then, of course, the rest of the family tumbles into the scene and then everything goes to shit. But he's always carrying that thing around. Ki-woo is because he is going to marry the girl, the young girl. And then this house is going to become the in-laws house. And it's that hope that keeps her from identifying with the maid and the maid's husband. But isn't it really funny too that he even has to say or they even talk I think it's when they're getting drunk or whatever when when the family's when the park family's out camping and it's like well if I do end up marrying her I'm going to have to hire a mother and a father to be the in-laws. Like he he still won't be able to actually authentically enjoy that setting right which is why when he's when he's upstairs and he's like looking out at the very end when they're looking out over the party and he's talking with the daughter and he's like do I fit in in this setting there's a there's this weird disconnect where like even if he could fit into this setting he never will fit into this setting which also translates into the smell which you can never get that residue off right so it doesn't it doesn't matter he will never fit into that setting and that is partly why I think one of the the most profound kind of moments of dialogue or then the kind of like introspective monologue about the rock is when they're in the shelter in the gymnasium after the flood and his father's talking with them and he says something along the lines of how like this rock always follows me and it's i think that the rock haunts him with the promise or the demand um both the promise and the demand of that of achieving wealth and prosperity so it's the promise that you can achieve wealth and prosperity under conditions if you do X, Y, and Z, and therefore the demand is therefore you must do X, Y, and Z so that you can get this thing. So it's constantly haunting him, right? And that's why he clings on to it. And then ultimately it kills him. Well, it fucks up his head. It doesn't kill him. It fucks up his head. Awesome. Would you say The Rock is metaphorical? <laughs> it is metaphorical. It is indeed. Is it though? See, see, this is one of my things though is that what's really weird is that everything that we're saying I agree with it makes sense that the basement dweller would almost kill Kevin with the rock because that's the thing that condemned him, his belief that he will be rich and everything. But at the end of the movie, when he vows that one day he'll make enough money, he puts the rock underwater as if he's distancing himself from it, as if he's saying, I don't need this anymore. I'm distancing myself from this belief in prosperity, and yet... He seems to be making a mission statement that I'm going to make so much money so I can save my dad. This never made sense to me. Is he burying it under the water or does it go unconscious? Think of the iceberg metaphor that everybody uses for understanding the unconscious, Mm. right? 
Is he burying it? Maybe he thinks he sure. is. But nevertheless, his whole life has now been changed so that he can get a shitload of money. Now, the reason is so that he can hopefully buy this house that has meant so much to him, that's been the symbol of prosperity and wealth and success and achieving the stairs and the social status, but also releasing his father. That's that's the, the symbol of freedom as well, right? So does he – he doesn't like blow the rock up and forsake it and say, ah, I'm going to focus on family and love and career and purpose and depth and truth. No, it's I'm going to completely devote myself to everything to get rich. Family, kids, that can come later. First thing, get rich. So he like sets it firmly into his subconscious. I can see that. Yeah, maybe. Um, So you're mentioning the stairs. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I just thought that it was so dramatic, like just from a cinematic perspective, like the the amount of stairs that you have to go up and down in this film. <laughs> and especially when the rain is coming and they flood, like I felt tired going up and down those stairs in the film. Like it was it was like exhilarating, like a ride almost. Right. So you have that there. They're basement dwellers. They live in the, the like that like basement housing. So not only are they down the stairs, but then even their house is like semi underground, right? So they only have like a little window that's partially above the ground. So they're like in the basement of the basement. But then of course there's this little like town, this little urban squalor uh, that is that is down these huge stairs. So you have to go up the stairs just to get to like the suburban nice homes to get to the upper class or the middle upper class or whatever they are. And then not only that, but you have to go up more stairs to get into the actual residency, the park residency, right? You have to climb up those little stairs to get up even into them. So not only they're on a street and they're on a street that's going uphill. So it's constantly like, like Ryan was saying, Snowpiercer takes you left to right in this horizontal movement. But this film is all about the up and the down and it's climbing that social ladder or the social stairs and the park family, they're up at like the tippy top, right? But it's always Mm. like constantly going up and down the stairs. And I just, I found it almost like exhausting to kind of, (laughs) to do it, you know? Yeah. So it's just the stair motif about social climbing makes sense. Yeah, and I think just from a visual perspective, like, isn't it so powerful? Like, that you get taken yeah. on this journey. It's it's like being on a roller coaster almost. You're going up and down and up and down. And it's almost like that's what – it's not almost like. That is what good storytelling does, right? The show don't tell. <laughs> you don't even need to say, yeah. like, oh, I got to climb up the stairs so I can get to the rich people. No. You know what you do? You just show them doing it. And then you show the struggle of them, how no matter what happens when it's pouring rain, when a natural disaster occurs, you have to go back down to where you belong. And then when you get down to where you belong, your world is wiped out because you can't right. deal it, with it. You know, It's a great visual way to show how some – issues affect the poor more because when it's just something simple like rain you can lose everything you have while that's, that's it the park family is just camping in it's the backyard fun. yeah the kid is playing in the backyard in this yeah. thunderstorm right he's having fun like oh this is cute and fun and the parents are able to have sex and get off while the family their entire life is destroyed do you guys think there's anything meaningful in the fact that the kid is obsessed with native americans yeah parasites you know, I mean, we came over and took all the land. Mm. I could. Yeah. Or is it like this uh, kind of this? Well, first of all, we can see that there is this general obsession with everything Western. Actually, my my girlfriend's dad just went to Seoul last weekend and he's, it was his first time going. And he said that city doesn't even look like it's in Asia. It's completely Western. You cannot mm. see a single cultural relic from anything any traditional past it's a completely western thing but i just love in this movie every time someone makes an appeal to oh i know somebody who's educated in illinois Mm. you know it's it's all the all of a sudden just a mark of status yeah and now i'm not trying to shit on illinois state university but the fact that the mother gets so excited about a state university in illinois rather than it being like I don't know, Harvard or Northwestern or Stanford or something like that, right? Like the fact, I mean, maybe Illinois State has a really good art school like that I just don't know about, but I would doubt that a random mother who is defined as being quite simple anyway would have insight knowledge about art schools in the United States, but she gets so excited just because it's an American university. 
right? No, see, I I love that moment because she's just as clueless as him. Yeah, it would have been better for Kevin to cite Harvard or Yale or something like that, but instead he just cites some random city in the United States and the woman who is so much more prosperous than him but yet is just as much of a simpleton as him is immediately just like oh illinois i know that's in the united states go on i know i know like like for people who are from california it'd be like somebody saying like oh like so and so went to cal poly pomona and you're like oh (laughs) cal poly no way in california and you're like yeah in california and then someone gets really excited about it not shitting on cal poly my stepdad went there yeah go cal poly but Again, it doesn't have the like international appeal of some of the larger, more prestigious universities, but it doesn't matter because it's a Western university. So it carries some sort of international or cultural clout with it. Did you guys – I want to talk about the distinction between Min, who is the friend that gives him the rock, and Kiwu, a.k.a. Kevin. There's a part where at the beginning Min scares away the drunkard and then Kevin tries to do it and he totally bones it up. <laughs> he ends up getting a bunch of water on him. And then so this whole thing where Kevin tells Mrs. Park's daughter that in the first lesson she's going to need vigor. This is what you were talking about earlier, Austin. That word vigor comes – he's only citing that because his mother had looked at Min and said, yes, college students, they have vigor. And then when they escape the Park family when it's raining and then when they get back down to their house and see how fucked up their situation is, uh, Kevin says, I wonder what Min would do in this situation. Why is there? Why are they elevating this character to such a grand status? Is it just because he's of a slightly higher status because he's going to college? I mean, I thought it was that simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the buddy that made it out of you know the neighborhood and is is doing stuff with his life. Oh, is that it? Was he part of the? Yeah, I guess that makes sense. He climbed. Right. He He climbed climbed his way out. Yeah, and isn't there some sort of – there's something interesting too about Kevin who when he first has the fake certificate of having gone to – was it Oxford? Um, Where his dad is like, oh, you know, like this is really great. And then his son says something along the lines of like, I just printed this certificate out early. I will be going there next year. Yeah. Right? So it's like a fake it till you make it kind of thing. Yeah. Which is basically the gospel here in L.A. Dude, I think it's the gospel of kind of consumerist society, right? Like, mm-hmm. we, we talked a lot when we were talking about, oh, God, what was that fucking documentary? Where we talked about, like, Finstagram and Instagram, oh, right? Oh, uh, the Fire Festival. The Fire Festival, that's right. But, like, how Finstagram, it's called fake Instagram, is, like, the real versions of yourselves, right? Like, you without makeup and you not trying yeah, to act yeah, like yeah. you... I don't know, can fly in private jets or something like that, but you probably just rented it for a hundred dollars an hour or whatever the heck you did, right? Which so it's like it's like there's an admitted understanding that this branding culture that we're currently saturated in is this fake it till you make it kind of culture. And shit, I used to work in a company where we literally used to say it all the time. Like, not even as a joke. It was fake it till you make it. I had I had people that I worked with that had it on their desk. I had it printed out, fake it until you make it. And I was like, okay. I mean, like it's it's I don't it's is it beyond irony or because it's like so just embraced that yeah you just got to kind of bullshit and then you make that money and then supposedly you've made it I guess I and don't that's know. what all the Kim family is doing that's it man they're all faking it you know um a couple other things oh another thing I want to mention there's so we were talking a little bit earlier about how whether it's the maid's husband or Mr. Kim when they are basically worshiping Mr. Park when they have to like press his lights and they say mm. uh, they say you know like returning from a hard day's work I love you so much Mr. Park there's a scene where the Kim family is celebrating that their incomes to if they put all their incomes together it's massive and that they're getting jobs that 500 university students line up to and they say they give a toast. And they say, we want to give thanks to Mr. Park. And I think that they're both underground, both the parasite, the maid's husband, as well as the entire Kim family underground saluting the man who signs their checks. Are they not the same? I thought that was a really powerful juxtaposition. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't really have much to add. I, it is. No, it's, that's see, that, that's what I'm saying. It's not yeah. a very metaphorical movie. It's very 
on the nose in a good way. Mm. Which is why when which is why when Kevin says this is so metaphorical, I feel like I don't know, is he is he winking to the fact that the movie is much more text than subtext, or is he winking to the fact that a message that he had put in previous movies, mostly Snowpiercer, is now just out in the open? Well, but the, the the reason it's that I would say it is metaphorical is because it's told through the lens of a singular family, right? Or two families, let's say, the rich family and the poor family. But they are obviously meant to be stand-ins for a much wider economic reality, which is the class relations between a sort of proletariat class or a proletarian class and a bourgeois class, right? So that's where it's metaphorical. So when you get at the end, the guy who's like the old the old husband who comes running up the stairs and he causes the chaos at, at the birthday party and uh, he stabs the daughter and then, uh, and then you get uh, the father who then stabs Mr. Park. Like at that point, isn't that meant to sort of symbolize again class struggle like the outbreak of a type of class war this is what it leads to it culminates in this type of clash right so in that sense i would say it's metaphorical because it's told through the focus of like these two families rather than it being a literal story about like in joker which is literally about you get a class revolt right so right in that sense it's metaphorical and then of course you have like this rock that is meant to symbolize prosperity and wealth you have the stairs that's meant to symbolize the climbing of the social ladder. Um, we think. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, me- metaphors are open for interpretation, right? But, like, so it does seem that I-, I totally get what you're saying in terms of, like, maybe relating it to how obscure Snowpiercer was. It's a bit more on the nose. But I think that the metaphor goes deeper. And I think that's why, that's why I was really drawn, especially in this viewing, the second viewing. To Kevin saying it's so metaphorical because then it made me like tune in. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to see where the layers go, how deep the layers might go. You know? uh, I definitely yeah. am the- leaning way more towards you, Jared, in the, in the sense that he's kind of trolling us with that line. You think? Like- That's what I was thinking. But also in the back of my mind, I'm also thinking that something might be lost in translation. Maybe. Um, there's just something we're not getting because we don't speak Korean. Maybe. I, mm. I, 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 another part of the class thing is that, or, or just like the whole, like, what, who's the parasite and whatnot uh, thing is, is the structure of the movie, you know, we haven't really talked about how much of a twist that, that learning about this basement is. Like, like the, the, the movie sets itself up to be one thing. You get to that, that part where they're literally toasting to Mr. Park and you're like, wow, this is awesome. Where can this go? They've really made it. You know, I guess you, you can see the logical conclusion of like him falling in love with the daughter or whatnot and, and seeing that play out. But but it sets it all up. And then you just get a total 180 degree uh, uh, or whatever, 90 degree angle on uh, when you learn about the basement and the other fa- and the other people that are that are parasiting off of them and whatnot. Um, I don't know. I think that that was very deliberate. What do you guys think? Yeah, to kind of say that this is really interesting too, right? Uh, right after that, the father has that whole speech when they're in the gym about plans. And they're sitting there making their plans, right? And all their plans get scuppered. And he's basically like, that's the best way to live is to not have plans. Because if you don't have plans, then you can't be disappointed and your plans can't get thwarted. So, but they're sitting there. They're making plans. You know, the son's like... I'm going to marry her and this is going to be our house and then we're going to be living the high life and we're going to have climbed the social ranks and then all of that gets thrown into chaos because of fucking the world is chaos. Thunderstorm comes, this random woman comes back because there's been some crazy shit going on in this house. So it's like that old Mike Tyson quote. It's like, yeah, you can have all your plans until you get punched in the mouth, right? And then yeah. and then you got and then it's all improv, baby, cuz then you don't know. Well, they got fucking punched in the mouth. Right when they were making all their plans, and that kind of that that's kind of what's going on. Um, it's you could think of it as, and see, this is what I was thinking about. G- granted, I just taught a class on financial crises here, so I'm teaching a class on international economy and finance, and we're getting to financial crises. So maybe that's another thing that I'm thinking of why it's metaphorical, because I'm thinking of like the rainstorm and getting punched in the mouth to extend that metaphor to the idea of like financial crises, like just things that can come out of nowhere, and then what do you do? 
how do you deal with it? And then how does it exponentially affect the poor more? Think of the rainstorm as affecting them more. But if you're wealthy, yeah, it could be a blip on the radar or it could be a great opportunity for investment. Buy low, sell high. You know, at a time of crisis, that's an amazing opportunity for new assets to weaken and to be opened up and for you to strengthen your position as long as you know what you're doing or you're in the right, you're in the right space. But if you're poor, you're going to get screwed. So, so I think there's a lot of that stuff going on as well. Do you also think that there's an element of them getting a taste of their own medicine in that you brought up the pizza box people before? So they're fucking up the pizza box people's game. And that lady that we see who pays them is probably not a rich person. She doesn't seem to own the company. She's she's working class and they're screwing up her means of making money. And then once they make it, the person that screws up their means of making money is somebody who was in the situation that they're in, somebody lower on the ladder. This is one of the reasons why I really like this film, because it doesn't seem to come from a position of, like, preaching, right? Like, so many films that have a social commentary, they take an ideological position, like, I'm on the side of the working class, all rich people are evil and bad, you're you're the bad person, and I'm going to show you why you're immoral, or the opposite side, greed is good, right, kind of thing. Whereas this film, I think, really does a nice job of kind of, like, walking that balance and saying... Look, man, even people in the working class are competing against each other and are going to fuck each other over and are going to do what they got to do to hustle to make their end to make ends meet. And they're struggling and they're in a position and there are larger like structural questions that that are really that we ought to focus our criticism on and not so much the individual relations kind of that are dealing within those structural positions. And that's why I think this film is so good, because it doesn't preach down to you. Yeah. Um, OK, a couple other things. Some just general things, details that I really liked. I love how when they're celebrating in the park's house, when they're eating all their snacks, drinking all their booze, the daughter is eating dog treats for like <laughs> 10 minutes before she realizes that they're dog treats, which is just more debasing the poor to the point. Or, or the, just the discrepancy between the lives of the rich and the poor are such that the rich are feeding their dogs things that human beings would love to eat. Um. I also like I also like a detail that when the parks are having sex on the couch while the Kims are awkwardly under the table, they're role playing being poor as they have sex. And uh, this reminds me of like I know we bring him up so often, but when Zizek talks about Titanic, he talks about how like, you know, uh, Rose and Titanic is the bourgeois who needs to kind of slum it with the poor guy to suck up the vitality of the poor man before she just sucks up that vitality and then discards of him later. And I feel like I see <laughs> you see similar things here with the the rich wanting to uh, fantasize about being poor to suck up that quote unquote working class vitality, which is all nonsense. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I was just going to ask you guys, have you guys ever eaten anything funky when you've been fucked up before? You know, eat dog food or something like that? One of your homies is like, try bacon bits, time, man. You're like, okay, I'll try some bacon bits. The answer is yes. <laughs> never never that. I did accidentally uh, – never mind. It's a bad story. Um, <laughs> uh, this is – I mean, I accidentally drank carpet cleaner once oh when I was God. fucked up. But that was just because my roommate's sister was a doofus and she put – the carpet cleaner, which looked like water, into one of my water bottles to spray on the carpet, and I couldn't tell because it just looked like fault. water. Not my fault. Uh, last question I have, Namgung, the famous architect. So the maid and her husband refer to him as a kind of holy figure. This was always very curious to me. Did you guys come away with anything regarding that? It, that was a weird... I, I kind of... What I came away with was, what am I supposed to come away with it here? Yeah, mm. me too. Yeah. Yeah, because so doesn't know. someone say something at the end too? Like, like kind of like mock worshipping the famous Nam Goon in this. Yeah. Moment. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the deal is. I mean, the home almost, it, it kind of looks like a, um, not quite a prairie style, but it kind of has the clean lines of a, of a Frank Lloyd Wright. Now, I know that like prairie style and craftsman uh, architecture were heavily influenced by eastern lines as well. So, um, so I know that there's like an integration between a lot of western architecture and eastern architecture, but could that be another kind of – you know, like a, a worshipping of, of Western design or Western innovation, art, 
technology something. I mean, I'm really stretching it here, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that would make more sense if he was a Western architect. But yeah, I don't know. I don't have any answers anywhere uh, to that one. But anyway, uh, anything else you guys want to bring up before we go into the mailbag? Yeah, I, I was just going to say real quick, I did find it interesting also the the bit that the husband is like, yeah, if, if you are wearing those like poor cheap panties, then that'll really turn me on sort of thing, which is which is pretty interesting to think about, right? Like like everyone else thinks like the 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 Kim family is like, oh, you know, we'll be happy once we get into this. Like like when you're when you're rich, you're everything gets ironed out. I think the mom says at one point, yeah, right? Yeah. Like all the it cracks get ironed out. Nice. But then so they're trying to role play to be as though they're rich and to to bask in like having a bath and you know watching TV for a long long period of time but then again the rich they're not ultimately satisfied because remember the husband at one point when he's talking with the, the dad when he's driving uh he's like yeah we'll call it love like when the yeah. dad when the, when the dad yeah. is like you know do you really love her he's like yeah sure we'll call it love so you're kind of like oh okay so they're... i love i also love in that scene it's always a hard cut from mr kim to mr park but when he asks but you love her right it's actually a whip pan back to mm. Mr. Park is a great moment. Yeah, and he and he and the husband Mr. Park is you're like you're almost thinking he like almost crossed the line. He's crossed the line, right? Has he crossed the yeah. line? And then he laughs and it it was a really lovely moment of like uh directorial tension there, but a really interesting scene I thought. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, uh, we are going to go into the mailbag. We're going to go into some voicemails. Hit us up at 21ElfHut07 or 213-534-8807. We got some Spider-Verse voicemails. Let's start with Al. Hey, show me the meeting crew. Al Toido here. Just wanted to drop a quick note about the Into the Spider-Verse and uh, specifically what Jared had a question about, the blurry doubling in the animation. Um. This was actually just an homage to the way that older comic books were printed. They used to print in passes each color of a page one color at a time, and sometimes the pages wouldn't align exactly, therefore producing that blurry, doubled look. Um, Yeah, so I love everything that Wisecrack does, so keep up the good work. Bye, guys. Thank you, Al. Yes, Amanda, who works with us, informed me of that after the podcast, and... Yeah, thank you so much. We're going to go with one from Maya. Hey, Wisecrack. This is Maya from Dallas. I was giving a call about the movie uh, Into the Spider-Verse. It looks like we're having an issue with finding out uh, what he learned after he lost his uncle. And the running theme for all of the uh, multiverse spider men and women is that they all sound lost. So they all had lost um, the animated girl with the robot, lost her parents, um, you know, the noir lost his girl, so did Peter, uh, the other Peter Parker from the other universe. They all lost, and then they became Spider-Man, um, not because, you know, they were revengeful or, you know, they felt, you know, that they needed to, but it inspires them to be Spider-Man. So the loss makes the man, uh, which is kind of the running theme for all the spider men and women in this movie. Um, that was just my take on it. I'd uh, love to hear what you have to say about that or maybe even go a little further on that theory. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Maya. I really like how the movie has... Every character has their kind of alteration on the Uncle Ben story, on how there's just some... And I hadn't actually thought about that until Maya brought it up. I knew that there was Uncle Aaron versus Uncle Ben, this kind of A-B thing going across the multiverse. But yeah, she's right. All the spider people have lost something, and it's always a kind of an alteration of the Peter Parker, Uncle Ben thing that f- supercharges their origin story. So that's pretty cool. Uh, okay, um, we got one. Actually, let's just go into the emails because we've got some about Parasite. So you can hit us up at movies at wisecrack.co. This one's from Brian. Brian says, hey, long-time listener, first time writing in. Just wanted to say you all rule and that Parasite is the best movie of 2019, possibly more than a few years before, too. I've never felt more realized in film than here. I'm an American who teaches English in China, and the separation of class, the faux nobility of money, and the scamming going on at all different levels of society are omnipresent. 
I've literally seen done the trick rich people to hire friends and family shtick because people felt it was the only way to get ahead. It's a sad state of affairs and I'm not sure how to fix it, but addressing it couldn't hurt. Also, to tie in with Joker, I think this is how one bad day really turns out. The dad didn't become an anti-hero supervillain. He had to live in a hole for the rest of his life. The poor don't flip out and hurt thousands. They don't have that reach. Anyway, I hope you guys can talk about this film. It's got plenty to discuss at slash rage at from Brian. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, that's good. Do you guys think it's the best film of 2019? I'm going with Climax for that distinction. Thank you very much. Oh, that's a good one. Man, maybe. I'm trying to think what else I liked this year. I really liked Midsummer. Yeah. What else? What What else? I know you have a list, Ryan. What's else? What else is on your list? Uh, let's see here. I'm, I'm so glad you asked that, Jared. Let me. <laughs> just, uh, I'm I'm uh, picturing like a cartoon. You know when they like take out the roll and they like unroll it and it just like do 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 just like <laughs> he yeah I mean he down. every year he does it. So, like, I okay. just so happen to have it right here. So my number one climax, two Midsommar, three Parasite. I won't go through all of them, but uh. Good Boys is four. I love Good Boys. John no, Wick three is five. Oh fuck yeah, of course. Yeah, Spider Man actually was seven, and Joker was eight. I really like those movies. Toy Story four, ten. Anyway, huh. I would have to say Midsommar. This movie, those are probably the top. I wasn't crazy about Toy Story four. What about anyway, Cop Chronicles: Loose Cannons, The Legend of the Hajj Mirage? That movie's fucking awesome. <laughs> Written and directed by uh, Wisecrack editor Mark Potts. Shout out. If you, have, if you have Amazon Prime, go check that movie out. He made it for less money than you would believe, and it's hilarious. <laughs> uh, all right, this one is from Derek. He says, Bong Joon-ho always has strong messages of class in his films, which is extremely apparent in Parasite. One thing I haven't been able to figure out is when Kim killed Mr. Park... When Jessica dies, it's clear from the guest's reaction that unlike the park boy, an employee wasn't worth protecting. When they kill the old housekeeper, it's through a fight for survival and still is to some extent accidental. However, when Kim kills Mr. Park, I haven't been able to find any commentary other than Kim simply having had enough of being humiliated. Is there something more here or is it just a plot point to get us to Kim's fugitive status from Derek? Mm. I think it's that and it's very subtle. But he sees Mr. Park uh, hold his nose when he turns over the uh, the the maid's husband, the guy from the lair, to get yeah. the keys, and he's just it reminds him of the fact that uh, you know the poor are so debased that they're almost subhuman; they don't even smell like human beings, well, and well, so he just well, kills them. More importantly, him. though, I think that it goes back to the thing he told his son where he said like, I don't have a plan, you know? So like, this was just like such a on the spot Mm. decision that was so consequential, but Mm. he's like, I don't have a plan. This I'm just doing this, you know, and fuck, fuck the consequences. Fuck. If I can't see my family anymore, you know, this is what I want to do in this moment. And to me, we haven't really talked about this, but I, I, I kind of feel like this whole movie has a subplot of like ambition you know, like, like, like he mm. literally says he has no ambition. He's like, if you have none, then you won't get hurt. Like, and that's, that's kind right. of how yeah. he wants to live his life. And he, it works for him. And that's how he's taught his whole family. Whereas you do like, yeah, we've talked about, you know, how this rich family are kind of sucking off the needs of this poor family. But at the end of the day, this, the, you know, this VR expert or whatever, he is making a killing in the VR game. And that's why mm. their family has a shit ton of money. And, it probably took a lot of ambition to get to that point, you know, and yeah, his wife doesn't have it, but she's along for the ride because she's his wife or whatever. So I feel like, and then at the very end, it's like you have the son sitting there going, I'm now going, you know, I, I used to have no plan like my dad, like I learned from my father, but now I have a lot of ambition and it's all to save my dad, you know, who has none. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I think we're, we're meant to feel both positive and and negative feelings about that ambitious plan that the son has. In one sense, it's like a, an admirable aspiration. And another sense, like that's why the, the stare into the camera is so powerful, I think, because it's almost a blank stare. It's a neutral stare. And it's it's almost like meant for us to think uh, that, that, that there's like an ambiguity about this aspiration to climb the social ladder because it's got some good things. Like, yeah, I want to help 
free my dad, but at the same time, at what cost, what are the consequences that have led me to this place, you know, and like, even if I do climb the social ladder, will I ever fit in? Can I ever get the stench off of me? Um, well, ambition, that's the thing though, is that yeah. they were going so far out of their way to not play by the rules because they thought that they had to, you know, like, like they're like trying to do everything. They're putting so much effort to doing the wrong thing because they think it gives them one little edge up. But when in reality, you know, like in his little fantasy at the end, if he's just going to work his way up, get, you know, do it the normal way and then earn, you know, wealth like a normal functioning member of society. I feel like, like, like this is the, this is Bong Joon-ho in the, the weird sense, the weird movies way of, having him come to that roundabout decision, you know, mm. for good reasons. Cause at the end of the day, you like, you get, you want to make money to help your family. And this is very literally him trying to get, make money to just to help his family mm. save his dad. Mm. I did want to say one thing that I forgot to mention like earlier, but it just like my memory just got sparked from, from that email for whatever reason. But uh, in psychoanalysis, sometimes it's often referred to as the return of the repressed. And so people who use psychoanalysis as a cultural tool to kind of criticize, let's say, the, the elements of society that are buried under, right? Like uh, our iPhones, for example, are actually burying slave labor from coltan mines in the Republic of Congo. But it's really easy for us to brush over that and forget about it. And so we kind of like we, we neglect it. But the idea is, is that eventually you, can ne- you, can't, you can't neglect um, that which you have repressed forever. And so I think you kind of get that in this, right? That at the end, the, the reason the dad freaks out when the when the father plugs his nose is that he's been trying to kind of like bury it and be like, oh, it's okay. I smell a little bit, but I can, you know, we can just wash our clothes with different laundry detergent or whatever. But then when the father plugs his nose, that's the return of the repressed. You can't ever actually get rid of that which has been held down entirely. And so then it... It uh, it bursts out, if you will, in kind of like a violent, unconscious rage, which is actually what Franz Fanon refers to it as in Wretched of the Earth. He talks about like this unconscious rage that comes out. So, and, and the thing, and the thing, and the thing I wanted to add about this scene that uh, that Derek brought up is that one thing we've forgotten is that he's dressed as a Native American when he stabs <laughs> the guy. So you want to talk about return Good of the point. repressed, Good you know? Point. Uh, yeah, and and that scene where. He's he's telling Mr. Kim, Mr. Park is telling Mr. Kim that, hey, you know, you're going to have to get up and act, you know, start running around and have my son shoot you. And Mr. Kim's like, oh, I don't know, I want to do that. And he's like, Mr. Park's like, um, I'm, I'm paying you extra for this. You must do it. This is part of the job. And it's, yeah, completely debased. But anyway, what were you going to say, Ryan? I was just going to say, I mean, just to be clear, I do think the ending is like a tragic ending. Like, mm. like I, I think that he, like, while the son has this ambition, I mean, he, fuck, he was just hit with the, uh, over the head with a rock. He's, I don't think that he's literally, I, I think that the ending's open-ended also is supposed to be kind of a downer in the sense that he doesn't like, I don't think that it, uh, sorry, the fantasy he's t- saying at the end is not going to happen. Like this kid is like going, yeah. like, like you're saying, well, certainly kid, not at the age that they show him. Say that again. Certainly not at the age that they show him. I mean, they show him in his fantasy in a suit walking up at you know the age of twenty something that he's at. It's probably going to take him a good twenty five years to accumulate all that wealth. Exactly. If he so, even I mean, does, I do, do think it. it is kind of a pipe dream, and that also is part of a. Mm. a, 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 a you know, the tragedy of the ending is like, like, like it, t- it took him to get to that realization, but now he's even in worse, uh, worse situation than before to achieve any of that, you know, uh, because yeah. of all the decisions that they made uh, through the movie. Well, two things. Is it a pipe dream or is it just the dream that we call the American dream or the well, right. dream of yeah. capitalist success? Right. Well, I, and then I the think second... that that's what he's trying yeah. to talk about with the movie is that like, you know, yeah. the, the ambition at the end is not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, and then here's my other question. I literally just thought of this because he doesn't literally die, but he does sustain brain damage and he has to have brain surgery. So is there a sense in which the only reason that he can come to that quote-unquote realization that I must now like bury this this uh, rock down into my unconscious if we're going to go with that interpretation and then buy into this narrative altogether that I will become rich because he says I'm going to forsake family and kids and I'm just going to get rich first. So is there a sense in which he almost has to die to himself because up until that point his whole 
ambition, his whole motivation has been family-oriented. He helps his sister who helps the father who helps the mother, right? It's all about the family. They are the – they are like the primary um, entity that concerns him. But after this, fuck the family. It's about just getting rich first. Now, granted, it's so that he can get into the house so he can release his father. But yeah, first it's and all foremost, about the family. You, you think know. even – yeah, even at the end. Well, I'm just wondering if like he almost like quote-unquote metaphorically dies and then gets like resurrected into a new life or something. You know, I can't help my spiritual themes here. Okay. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's like, a, right, guys. It's, it's like a bad resurrection. I don't know. I don't know. All right, guys. We're going to sign off. Where can we find you guys on the internet? Ryan. Um, I am on Funhouse sometimes and also Ryan's Game Show and Ryan's Shorts on Facebook and YouTube. All sorts of weird shit to go look at there. Thank you. And Austin. Yo, so I am becoming much more active. I Listen, I almost died, so I have like a whole new lease on life. So I have decided to up my brand and up my content shit. So I'm going to throw myself into this game of ambition and pure positivity and embrace yes. late capitalism. But I'm still <laughs> but I'm still going to do it from a critical perspective and not compromise on my principles, which means I'm producing a lot more content on Insta. So you can follow me on Insta, A-U-S underscore H-A-Y. I still got my Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. I have the other podcasts that I do, Owls at Dawn. But what I've done and jared you might be interested in this i'm doing a read through the bible on a new youtube channel that i just started we only i only have like a couple hundred subscribers so far but go to youtube if you're interested in hearing like a post-evangelical critical philosophical mythological reading of the bible i'm going to read through the whole bible in a year from genesis to revelation and then i'm just going to spitball ideas uploading a video most days pretty much every day if not every day pretty damn near close so check that shit out. It's just my YouTube channel, Austin Hayden. So yeah. Damn, that's hardcore. Did the people give you some well-wishing shout-outs when you were in the hospital? Because I, I asked the fans to send you some tweets. Did you Dude, get some I got nice mad tweets? love. Yeah, thank you for okay, that. Okay, good. It was uh, good. it was it was pretty overwhelming. I don't usually like to, I don't know, ask for attention and that kind of thing. Um, but but it I, was, I got I got it was you, lovely. Bro. I know it was lovely. <laughs> it was lovely to get it. So thank you guys. If, uh, yeah. if you're if you're a religious person, thank you for praying. If you're not, thanks for the well wishes and thoughts or just reaching out to me. It really did help. So We're glad you're back, dude. Yeah, really glad that you're all right. Thank you. Thank um, you. All right. We're going to I don't know if we're going to be back next week because we got the Rick and Morty podcast and the movie podcast. So we might take a week or two off. I think we're probably going to take one week off. But you mean and the, sh- we'll, and the South Park podcast. Yes. I don't know what I said other mm-hmm. than that. But, uh, yeah, so South Park, Rick and Morty. Uh, we'll probably be back to do The Irishman next, the Fuck Scorsese yeah. movie. So uh, we'll catch you next time. Send us out, Ryan. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. This has been Show Me the Meeting. It's so metaphorical, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Peace. 